Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us this morning. Lord, we're just here to worship you. We thank you. I just give you all the glory for the beautiful weather, for the chance to be here, most ultimately for the fact that we can know you, God, thank you, and that you sent your son to die in our place, Father. I pray that you would help us to understand that deeply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I wanted to start this morning by talking about paradox. Now, a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So in other words, what that means is a paradox is a statement that kind of makes you scratch your head. All right? Something that just kind of like, what? At first. Um, It's it's a phrase that seems like it contradicts itself. Let me give you some, uh, some kind of stupid, silly illustrations of paradox, and I think you'll see what I mean. One famous one from filmmaker Samuel Goldwyn. He said, if I could drop dead right now, I'd be the happiest man alive. Okay, you kind of go, oh, okay. Uh, It's kind of funny. Irene Peters said, always be sincere even when you don't mean it. Okay, so that's a paradox kind of. W.C. Fields said, the best cure for insomnia is to get a lot of sleep. Right? I mean, these are just gold. Mark Twain said, it usually takes more than three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. (laughs) Yeah, kind of funny. Mark Twain also said, I can resist everything but temptation. Amen, right? And Socrates said, I know one thing that I know nothing. Right? Again, that's kind of the nature of paradox. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. Um, There's some other examples. There's, you know, um, paradoxes in quantum physics and things like that. But that's for another time. So by these examples, you can easily see what a paradox is. And I'm sure you can also understand the benefit of a saying like this, right? It's very easy to remember. It kind of sticks in your head. It kind of has that shock value. And so what we're going to do this morning is kind of ask the question, well, what does it have to do with Jesus? But it has everything to do with Jesus because you might have noticed that as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself uses sayings like this sometimes to communicate his message of truth to his disciples. And I think he does it for that very reason. It obviously stuck in their head. They remembered it years later. Well, this morning, we're finishing up the middle section of Mark's gospel. And you may not have noticed it, but, that, but this is going to be the third of three cycles. So there's been these three repeating cycles in this section of Mark, and I'll explain what I mean. Three repeating storylines. Let me explain. We have heard Jesus two times already. We're going to do the third this morning. Proclaim his death and resurrection to his disciples. In other words, he's predicting He's telling him, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again. He's done that twice already. And then what happens after that is they completely misunderstand what he's trying to say, and then he corrects them with the paradox. So there's three parts to this cycle. There's the proclamation, the misunderstanding, and the paradox. The proclamation, the misunderstanding, and the paradox. This has happened twice. We've been through two of them. We're going to see the third one this morning. The first time we saw it was when Jesus proclaimed that he would die and be resurrected in Mark 8.31. This was a while ago, but if you remember, this was the first time he ever even hinted to the disciples that he was heading towards death, that that was his mission. 
that he was planning on being killed by the Pharisees. He told the disciples that he would die and rise again. And remember, Peter rebuked him, basically saying, I don't think so, not on my watch, Jesus. Right? So there's the misunderstanding. Then Jesus rebukes Peter with the famous words, Get behind me, Satan. And then there's, so there's the proclamation, the misunderstanding. And then Jesus delivers this paradox, this, this kind of uh, short little pithy saying where he said this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. So Jesus tells us in the saying that in the kingdom, if you want to save your life, give it away, give it to Jesus. But if you cling tightly to your life, you will ultimately lose it. That's the paradox. That's the first cycle. Then in the second cycle, we saw Jesus again tell his disciples that I will die and I will come back again in Mark 9, 30 through 32. This is the proclamation. He said, guys, I'm going to be delivered over to men and they're going to take me and they're going to kill me. But after three days, I'm going to rise. So he tells his disciples this for a second time. And remember, they still didn't get it. They didn't get it the first time and they didn't get it the second time. They misunderstand again. And the misunderstanding this time was that if you remember, as they're walking, Jesus hears the 12 disciples and they're arguing amongst each other which one of them is the greatest disciple, which one of them is the best disciple. And I just had to be honest, I would love to hear what that conversation sounded like. I mean, how is a disciple of Jesus, how are they comparing each other? Okay, well, I casted out 10 demons. How many did you cast out? Okay, I healed six people. You know, how many did you? Well, I saw Moses and Elijah. I mean, come on. But they're arguing, they're arguing. Who is the greatest disciple? But anyway, Jesus had just told them that he was going to die, and they were arguing about who's the best. Proclamation, misunderstanding. Then Jesus gives them this statement, this paradox to correct them. He said, if any one of you would be first, he must be last and servant of all. With one simple sentence, Jesus blows apart their idea of greatness. Jesus basically turns their idea of greatness on its head, saying the greatest disciple is actually the one who counts himself the least and who is a servant of all. Proclamation, misunderstanding, and paradox. That's the cycle that the Holy Spirit, through Mark's writing, is emphasizing for us here in Mark. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the third time through this cycle. Now, notice what's happening. Each time, the cycle gets more specific and bigger in scope. The first paradox was basically, if you want to save your life, lose it for Jesus' sake. The second was, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. In other words, giving up your life to serve others is what being a follower of Jesus looks like. Why is it important to see this big picture of the three cycles? Because it means that the third cycle, this third paradox, is the climax of this whole section. The third time Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, and the third time they misunderstand, and the third time he corrects them, sums up this whole section of Mark. See, with the past two cycles, we've kind of broken them up into different sermons, but this morning we're going to be looking at the whole thing. So we're going to be seeing this, the proclamation. We're going to hear Jesus tell his disciples again how he's going to die. He's going to give them even more detail than he did before. That's the proclamation. The misunderstanding. We're going to watch two of the disciples show us their complete lack of understanding of how Jesus views things. The misunderstanding and the paradox. We're going to hear Jesus correct the disciples' misunderstanding again with a poignant statement, a poignant paradox He's going to explain why he came and how that relates to them and to us. Proclamation, misunderstanding, and paradox. 
makes sense. That's going to be the structure this morning. So first, we're going to look at the proclamation. So turn with me to Mark 10, verse 32 through 34. Well, the scene for today's is simple. They're on the road. Picture first century Palestine in your head. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and they're walking. It's getting close to Passover, and as all good Jews, they are heading up to Jerusalem for the festival. So they wouldn't be the only ones on the road. There's many other people on the road at this time, as all the Jews in the area just converged on Jerusalem towards the time of Passover. Now, as they're walking, something unique happens. Jesus begins to walk out in front of them in some sort of unique way. Look at verse 32. Read with me. It says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those that followed were afraid. So the clear indication of this short passage is that something about the way Jesus is walking is causing a stir amongst the disciples and amongst the other people who were following them. What was it? The text doesn't really say, although I think it's pretty clear what's going on. Everyone knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, are plotting to kill Jesus. That, Mark told us that back in Mark chapter 3. Everyone knows this. They're hunting for him. They want him dead. In fact, Jesus already told them twice, as we just looked at, that he's going to be killed by them. Well, where is the place where all the Pharisees and Sadducees hang out? Jerusalem. So I think what is going on is that all these people are thinking, what is he doing going there? He's going to be arrested. They're going to kill him. And yet he's out in front walking with determination. And so they're scared. They're scared what might happen. And you see, when the text says that he's out in front walking ahead of them, it implies intentionality in his walking. In other words, he knows what he's doing and he's heading there. Not only is he heading towards Jerusalem, but he is out in front of everyone leading the way. He knows what he came to do and he is on a mission. His face is set towards Jerusalem. His face is set on the cross. The twelve are amazed and the crowds are scared. And again, I would just remind you that Jesus dying on the cross was not an accident. It wasn't plan B. He says multiple times, we saw in Philippians, that he came for that very purpose. And so he's heading to his own death. Now in the midst of this, he pulls his disciples in closer and tells them again exactly what is going to happen. For the third time he tells them. And this time he gives them more detail than any of the other times. Look at the text starting in the middle of verse 32. It says this, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is saying, listen up, guys, don't miss this. Check this out. We're going to Jerusalem right now, and the Jews are going to arrest me. Then they're going to hand me over to the Romans, the Gentiles, and the Romans are not only going to kill me, they're going to beat me, they're going to mock on me, they're going to spit on me, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to turn me into a bloody pulp, and then they're going to kill me. After three days, I'm coming back alive. See, Jesus is more specific than he ever has been yet. And I want you to notice this. Because this is the absolute insanity of all this. This is the absolute insanity of all of this is to understand the point Jesus is trying to make. And it's really important to understand the point he's going to make later. The intentional humiliation that Jesus went through is absolutely 
mind-boggling. And I really appreciate the way that Randy brought that in his prayer. Let's all draw out all the humiliation in this text. Think about this with me. Let's make it really simple and clear. God comes down to earth in human flesh. Okay, that's already humbling himself. That's already humiliation. That's already condescension of the utmost degree. Then, not only that, the very people he came to rescue reject him. I mean, here is God in the flesh standing in their midst, here to save them, and they reject him. Again, utter humiliation, utter humbling, utter condescension. Now, not only do his people reject him, they hand him over to be killed. Remember, this is God in the flesh we're talking about. Humiliation. Not only do they hand him over to be killed, but they hand him over to the Gentiles. Again, humiliation. Not only do they kill him, but first they beat him to a bloody pulp, mocking him and spitting on him the whole time. And to top it all off, not only do they kill him, they crucify him, giving him the most shameful death anyone in the ancient world could ever undergo. Not only was it painful, but it was shameful. The only people who could legally be crucified were slaves and the worst criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you legally could not be crucified because it was viewed as so much disdain. And they nailed him to the cross, God himself. And so I want you to realize this. This this is the path that Jesus chose. In eternity past, when God was planning how to most glorify himself and to put his glory on display, for us to see, this is the path he chose. Absolute humiliation and degradation. When God the Father was contemplating how to best show his children that he loved them, more than anything, this is how he chose to display his love. He said, I will send my son, my only son, to be humiliated and degraded, also that they will know that I love them. Jesus chose this path. Indeed, Jesus desired this path, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him so that he might save his people. Are you starting to see that big picture? Jesus, the eternal son of God, came to earth to be humiliated and to serve us. That's insane. Don't miss that. Notice how it says in verse 33, he calls himself the son of man. Now he does this a lot in Mark, but there's a very specific reason why in this text, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And I want to read it to you right now because it's going to cement this picture that we have of Jesus. And as I read it, I want you to notice what this passage is saying about the Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All dominion and all glory and a kingdom. This passage is talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Messiah as all the Jews in his day knew. And what he is saying here in Mark And what Paul really makes clear in the passage we read from Philippians earlier this morning is that the path that Jesus takes to his glory, to this kingdom, is the cross. The path that he chose was humiliation. And this is the message that Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples here as they are on the road to Jerusalem, the road to his very death, where all of this is going to take place very soon. 
extreme humility, extreme degradation, extreme service, extreme sacrifice for his people, for us. This is our king and our savior, our God, and that's the Jesus that we follow. So we have seen the first part. That's the proclamation. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples for the third time. The question is, though, how did the disciples respond? And this brings us to the second part of the cycle, the misunderstanding. So again, we're on the road to Jerusalem, where all of these things are about to happen. And Jesus has just shared, this is what's going to happen. Humiliation, death, resurrection. Here's what takes place. James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, two of his closest disciples, by the way, decide that this is a good time to try to settle their places when Jesus becomes king. They decide this would be a good time to make sure that they had the best jobs when Jesus became king. They decided that this would be a good time to secure themselves some positions of authority, to get their kind of cabinet positions, if you want to put it into modern-day terminology. Now, before we just immediately think they're so stupid and really dig into them and, and how could they misunderstand and they're so arrogant, let's all take a step back and realize some of the positives about the situation. First, they really believe that Jesus is going to become a king. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking him these things. So we have to give that to them. Let's give them some credit. They really believe what Jesus is telling them. So much so that they're willing to approach him and ask him for positions of authority. So let's give them credit for that. Secondly, they're loyal. When we read the passage, you'll see how willing they are to follow Jesus to the end. Thirdly, in the culture of their time, what they're asking is not really that crazy. It's not all that inappropriate. From all we know, it seems like their mother, Salome, was Jesus' mom's sister. In other words, they were cousins. In the ancient world, the way that you got jobs was through your family. Everything in the ancient world was about family. And so what they're doing here is essentially reminding Jesus, hey, us two disciples, remember, we're family. So when you become king, when you come into your glory, we get better jobs than these other guys, right? And again, in a strong family culture, like first century Palestine, this is perfectly appropriate. So again, let's give them a little bit of credit, cut them a little bit of slack. The point of this whole thing, and I think what's important to understand their question that we're going to see, is that what they're asking is culturally appropriate. It's what you would expect of someone in this situation, but Jesus is going to take the whole thing and flip it on its head. So let's hear what they have to say. Chapter 10, verse 35 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And, he, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So you see, they want good jobs. They want some positions of authority. Remember, they still think Jesus is actually going to become an actual king right then and there. They want to sit on the side of the king. These would have been some seats of serious authority and power. Now before we see Jesus respond, I want you to remember what Jesus had told them on the road. Remember, he had just explained all of the horrible things that were going to happen to him and had implied that this was how he was going to achieve his glory and his kingdom. Keep that in mind because this is exactly what Jesus is going to allude to when he talks about the cup and baptism. So let's see Jesus' response. Look at verse 38. He says, it says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, are you able to suffer like I'm going to suffer? And they said to him, we are able. Note the loyalty. And Jesus said to them, 
The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So you're beginning to see what's happening. Jesus is telling them, guys, you don't understand. You still don't understand the path that I'm taking. It's going to be a path through extreme suffering. Indeed, a baptism of suffering. And they say, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. But I still don't think they fully get it. But Jesus still affirms that they will indeed follow him until the end. They will indeed follow him into suffering. And we know that they did. James actually becomes the very first martyr after Stephen. In Acts 12.2, it says that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And John himself suffers as well, beatings and ultimately gets exiled to an island. So we see their loyalty played out. They were loyal to Christ till the end. But the point is this, while they are loyal they still are not understanding the lessons that Jesus has been teaching. Remember last week when Rob took us through the story of the rich young ruler, how did it end? It ended with Jesus telling his disciples right before this story takes place, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But you see, James and John are still seeking to be first. They're still seeking greatness through glory, greatness through power, greatness through a high position, Greatness through impressing other people. They want to be first. They want to be important. And that's the misunderstanding. You see, Jesus doesn't have a problem with greatness. Not at all. Jesus pursued greatness. But you see, Jesus pursued greatness through humiliation, through suffering, through sacrifice, and through service to others. And so what is the paradox that Jesus is going to give these disciples to correct their misunderstanding? How is he going to show them what they are desiring is wrong? Let the text answer that question. And what we're going to see is really interesting. We're going to see that the other ten disciples apparently heard what James and John asked Jesus, and they were angry about it. Now, we have to be honest. The text doesn't tell us why they were angry, but it's pretty clear, right? Everything we've seen in Mark so far would lead us to believe that they're angry because they're getting in before them. They're saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't use your family business to try to get yourself better positions. And so what does Jesus do? He calls a huddle. He says, okay, guys, everyone come here. He gathers the 12 to himself on the road and corrects their misunderstanding. He's going to tell them that everything they think about greatness and authority is wrong. Let's read as Jesus gives his final paradox in Mark 10:41. He says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. And then here comes the paradox. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. What a stark contrast. Jesus here tells his disciples, look, you guys know how these Gentile rulers, these Romans use their authority. They're controlling, they're power-hungry. Not in my kingdom. Jesus tells them they need to stop pursuing greatness and start serving. Stop putting themselves above others and start becoming slaves to others, to everyone. They need to stop trying to gain stuff for themselves and start giving their lives to other people. My friends, all of the 12 except Judas eventually got this message. They all lived and died for the sake of the gospel, for the good news. They gave their lives to spread its message. They truly became slaves. And this word slave here is interesting because it's the first time that it appears in the Gospel of Mark. And it means specifically this. 
It's someone who has no rights. And I think it's hard for us to kind of understand in our modern American culture because we don't have actual slavery, um, but they did then. And it means someone who literally has no rights. They have no rights. It means someone who works for others for no pay and asks nothing in return. Doesn't even deserve a thanks. You didn't thank a slave in the ancient world for doing their work. That's what they had to do. They were obligated. They didn't get paid. They simply lived a life of service for their master. Brothers and sisters and friends, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying in this text. You see what he's saying. He's saying the Christian life, you want to follow me as an invitation to slavery. It's an invitation to a life of service of others. A life of self-giving. A life of sacrificing. A life that doesn't seek to fulfill itself, but a life that seeks to fulfill others. Coming to Jesus is saying, Lord, take my life and do with it what you will. And then actually living in a way that makes that clear. Because the truth is that we can't divorce love for God and love for people. It just doesn't work like that. You can't say, well, I really love God and then be a selfish jerk to everyone. First John says this, that if anyone says that they know God, but they don't love the brothers and sisters, the love of God is not in them. They don't know God. Plain and simple. One of the main ways we love God is by loving his people. And one of the surest marks that someone truly knows Jesus is that they have stopped the me, 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 me and started becoming a servant. And this is, the thing is, is this isn't an option for the Christian life. It's not just for super Christians or pastors or leaders. This is Jesus' call to all who would follow him. Become a slave to those around you and serving them and looking out for their best interests, asking nothing in return. But there is a motivation here and there is a reason. And I always say this and I'll say it again, that the Bible never tells us to do something without giving us a reason why or giving us a motivation. I've never found anything in scripture that, that God didn't say, this is why you need to do this. This is why it's important. And Jesus does exactly that here. Jesus gives us his reason, verse 45. So why must they live their lives as slaves, giving up their rights for others? Jesus answers in 1045. He says this, for even the son of man, remember the picture of glory, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, there it is. That's the reason to live like this. There is the reason. Even Jesus, God himself in the flesh, came to this earth to serve. When Jesus came to earth, he gave up his rights. Philippians said, as we saw, that, that he didn't count his equality with God as something to be clung to, but emptied himself and taking on the form of a slave. Now, that doesn't mean he ceased to be God, but he let go of that positional authority to serve us, taking on the form of a slave. I mean, that's crazy. What, and, and the crazy thing is when we say, well, I don't want to serve. I got to look out for me. What we're saying is, yeah, Jesus, God, was one who would serve, but I, no, I need people to serve me. My question is, what makes us think we're better than Jesus? Let's think about this. When God himself came to earth in human flesh, he came as a lowly servant, and he died in our place. The only person in the history of the world who would have been honest in saying, I'm perfect, so everyone should serve me. Instead, he said, I'm perfect, so I will serve you. Can we all agree that we're not better than Jesus? And if even he, even the God-man came to serve, then what he's telling us is then you must also serve. 
this is the Jesus that we follow. He is that good. He is that humble. He is that amazing that he came to serve us and call us to himself. And he calls us to live in the same way. Not only has he ransomed us, through his death on the cross, Jesus bought for himself. He purchased his people with his own blood. The text says he ransomed us. He brought us out of slavery to sin. He bought us out of slavery. That's what ransom means. He set us free. And because we are free, now we can serve others. That is the truth. There are a couple passages that really show this well. They really illustrate this concept. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin become slaves of righteousness. Notice the example. Jesus set us free so we can become slaves to doing good. It's quite a stark picture. See what the Apostle Paul says. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from having to serve sin so that now you can serve others in righteousness. In other words, you're not just set free to do whatever the heck you want. That's completely missing the point of the idea of freedom in the Bible. You're set free from sin and selfishness so that now you can give yourself freely to others in righteousness, to selflessness. That's the Christian life. And then listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5.13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, in other words, in selfishness, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we simply see the same thing here. We must use the freedom that Christ has purchased for us to serve others. Let us serve each other. Let us live for each other. Let us live to serve one another. This is what Jesus is calling us to this morning. This is what the disciples misunderstood. Let us not be like them. Let us be faithful followers of Christ. Husbands, let us serve our wives, putting their needs before ours, loving them well. Wives, serve your husbands, putting their needs before yours. Children, serve your parents. Parents, serve your children. And everyone, let us serve each other. Let us give our lives for each other. My prayer this morning is that we won't miss this. Hear the words of your Savior this morning. And I also thank God this morning that Jesus did die for us because when we fail at this, he still loves us. When we are selfish, he still loves us. His grace covers us. Sacrificing our lives does not save us, but rather we sacrifice our lives because we have been saved. And so one last thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus or you're not following him. Maybe you haven't given your life to him. Maybe you're still clinging on to your life, holding on to it closely. Well, I want to urge you this morning, would you come to Jesus? Would you come and put your trust in him? Turn from your sins, turn from your selfishness, turn from your pursuit of self-fulfillment and give it all to Christ. Would you trust him this morning? And so as kind of a closing, I would just say, friends, brothers and sisters, let's just show this in every area of our lives. Let the love of Christ just flow out of us to all of our brothers and sisters here. Let's give our lives for each other. Let's live for each other. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, God. We thank you for the message that you bring to us. In a hard message it is, Lord, that we must become slaves of each other. 
Hard words, Father. So, Lord, this morning, I thank you that you don't just give us those words and expect us to do it, but, Lord, you give us those words and fill us with your very power to do it, Lord. And the reason that we can even contemplate these things is because you loved us so much while we were yet enemies that you sent your son to die in our place so that even when we fail, you pour out your grace on us. Father, I pray that you would just open our eyes to your goodness, your love, your mercy this morning. Would you open our eyes to your son Jesus? Would we behold him in his glory? Would we behold him in his love? Would we behold him in his power and dominion? And out of that, Lord, would we just give our lives freely to each other, putting everyone else's interests above our own? Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace and help us to do that this morning. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.